Morning. Okay, this morning was tough on me. I, I am a handshaker and a hugger. And so I said, you know what, I'm not going to go out there, because if I go out there, I will shake their hands, and I will hug them, and I might make them feel weird. <laughs> so I, I avoided it, but it's hard. So anyway, uh, I'm glad to see all you guys brave this today, this, you know, global pandemic. It's not as scary as Walmart. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, we're going to continue on uh, in the three sermons that we had prepared to kind of get us ready for our First King series. Uh, and the reason I, I prepared these three messages this way was we wanted to get kind of a snapshot of the life of King David because uh, First Kings, our, our, our next series actually is called Kings, and it's over, for over First Kings. Uh, but First Kings references King David a lot. And I wanted to make sure that you had at least a, a basic understanding of who David was so it would make sense to you. Uh, so we've done that. I mean, there's so many things about David in the, in the Old Testament. I literally could not preach them all in like a year. So I had to pick three things that would kind of give you a, a picture of who he was. Uh, so the first message was over him being anointed king while he was still young. Uh, and while Saul was still king, while God had him anointed king. Uh, the second message was over David's victory over Goliath. Uh, and today's message, this is our last message before we go into Kings, is about David's sin and consequent repentance with Bathsheba. Okay, now, now from the day David was anointed, this is really, really important, okay? I want you guys to remember this, and it's, it's super important that you store this in your banks. But um, from the day he was anointed, he was fully indwelt with the Holy Spirit like we are, okay? The only Old Testament character I can actually prove that 100% with is King David. He was fully indwelt with the Holy Spirit. First Samuel sixteen thirteen, just the first part there. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, this is David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord, notice Spirit is capitalized, of the Lord, came mightily upon David from that day forward. Okay, so we know that he was fully indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And I say that because he's more like a New Testament believer or man of God because, you know, in the Old Testament, a lot of times the Holy Spirit would come and go on, on one of God's people. He was fully indwelt with it the entire time from this moment on okay so it's really important we pay careful attention to david's life because a lot of the things that we see him experience we can experience and we can learn a lot from his obedience and we can learn a lot from the consequences of his disobedience so now the title of today's message is the danger of distraction okay and as you'll see this is why david got in the problem he got into today but the enemy is never a greater threat to us than we're idle than when we're idle or when we're distracted okay that's when he has the best tactical advantage, and we'll see that in this story. So let's jump right in. Second Samuel 11.1. 1. It says, Then it happened in spring at the time when what? Kings go out to battle. So it was the time of year that if you were a king, you should be what? Out to battle if, you're, if your nation was at war. Uh, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and besieged Reba, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Okay, so David stayed at the house. That's what we're about to say, okay? Now, in the 4th century, uh, there was a man named St. Jerome, and he wrote this, and tell me if this sounds familiar. It says, engage in some occupation so that the devil may always find you busy. Does it sound familiar? Now, they say his inspiration probably came from Proverbs 16, uh, Proverbs 16:27 says, A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. Now, the word worthless in Hebrew, I love this definition, means the quality of being useless or good for nothing. 
Okay, so basically, the word worthless here basically means idle, lazy, good for nothing, right? Now, so basically what that's saying is, you know, if you, if you plug that in, is that an idle, good-for-nothing person digs up evil, and his words basically cause trouble. That's what that's saying. They're, they're thinking that's where, where he got the idea. But in the 14th century, there's another poet named Geoffrey Chaucer, and he wrote something similar, and this one I think you'll understand. It says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. How many people have heard that? Okay, that's kind of the lineage of that, right? So despite, you know, the author or, or the century or the inspiration for that saying, that concept is very, very accurate. Because you're going to find that David's sin with Bathsheba was the result of him having too much time on his hands. Okay, he was idle, and he shouldn't have been. Because he was distracted and idle and somewhere he shouldn't have been in the first place, he made himself an easy target, right? That's, that's how he got into this problem. Had he gone out to war, like kings were supposed to at that time of year, none of what we're about to study would have ever happened to him. Okay, so remember that. So there's two things we learn. In just this one verse, number one, kings were supposed to be at battle, right? That's what the verses tell us. Verse, uh, verse one tells us that. And the other thing is, is that since David stayed home, he put himself in danger. He put him, made himself a target for the enemy because he was idle, okay? Here's the thing. David was one of the most important and powerful people in all of Israel. So immediately, that makes him one of the enemy's favorite targets, Right, that immediately makes him one of the enemy's favorite targets. And now that he's got time on his hands and he's not doing what God wants him to do, he's not where God wants him to be, and he's idle, he's kind of just gift-wrapped himself for the enemy because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And this sounds really familiar to me because I, I deal with this all the time, not just in my life but in the lives of others. But as believers, sometimes we gift-wrap ourselves for the enemy because we allow ourselves also to be distracted, and we allow ourselves to be idle instead of allowing ourselves to be about the Father's business. Right? See, as a believer, sometimes we forget this. We are actually supposed to be the ambassadors of God's kingdom. Did you know that? We are supposed to be working to make his kingdom look good to people by our example, by our love. That's what we're supposed to be doing. 2 Corinthians 5.20 It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal, what? Through us, right? Now, as ambassadors, we already have a target on our back. See, the devil knows he can't take your salvation. Once you have it, you have it, okay? He knows that's not on the table. But what he does like to do is take people who are children of God, who are ambassadors for God. He loves to take those people and try to destroy their lives so they'll become ineffective at drawing others to Christ. That's what he loves to do, right? He loves to just get us distracted enough and idle enough to make us vulnerable so he can attack us. And believe me, it's not that hard to distract us. You know what I mean? We're pretty easy to read, wouldn't you think? I mean, greed, would you say most of us have at least at one time been distracted by greed? Right? I was hoping somebody would say no so I could shame you. No, I'm just kidding. Or lust. I've heard of people being distracted by lust. You know? No, all of us have been distracted by greed and lust. And here's one, pride. Anybody ever been distracted by your pride? Okay, the next one, none of you guys will know anything about. Have you ever been distracted by social media? Probably not. I'll move on. You guys been reading that lately? Plenty of sin to go around there. We'll talk about that another day. Here's something that's kind of distracting. How about this? Fear. Anybody think of any examples? You know, just to show I wasn't afraid, I went around and licked every door handle. I'm just kidding. I didn't. I didn't. I did not do that. 
Matter of fact, I got a little nauseous when I said that. But these are just some of the things he can use to distract us, right? He wants to get us distracted and get us idle. Basically, these are things he uses to, to take our eyes off what we should be doing and get us doing things we shouldn't be doing, focusing on things we shouldn't be focusing on. And the next thing you know, we're where we shouldn't be or with someone we shouldn't be or in a situation we shouldn't be in because we've been distracted by one of or multiple things. Maybe uh, some of the stuff I listed, maybe not, right? But either way, that's how he works. Now, David may have been idle, and David may have been distracted, but the enemy wasn't, and he never is. He never is. He never loses focus on what he's here to do. He's always good at his job. Now, look at this. Second um, Samuel, if I don't move my screen out of the way. Second Samuel 11, 2. It says, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the, of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. That's creepy. Is that creepy? So David is not at war, where, which is where he should be. And so he wakes up late, right, eats his Cheerios, and he walks out on the roof and starts staring at a woman who's bathing. Okay, now, I'm going to go off a little bit here. Okay, because people misread this verse, and Bathsheba gets a really bad, bad deal out of this. Okay, I've heard people say, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been out there bathing naked on a roof. I'm like, it doesn't say she was on a roof. It doesn't even say she was naked. It says that he was on a roof and he saw her bathing. I mean, a lot of people make Bathsheba seem like she was this exhibitionist, you know, this vixen out there trying to lure him in. She was taking a stinking bath. You know what I mean? There's no proof that she was on a roof. At this time, people didn't have the luxury of private bathrooms. Very few people did. So, yes, there was a possibility they could bathe on a roof. Sometimes they would leave their water up there through the day. And in the Middle East, you can imagine how hot that water would get, right? And then in the evening, when it was dark, they could use that as a tub. That could have been one of the things. But most likely, she was bathing in a stream or a pond somewhere because that's what they did. But when a woman would do that, and the place wasn't very private at that time, they would wear kind of a garment over top of them when they were taking their bath, okay? Just in case someone was looking, just in case there was a pervy king watching from a roof somewhere. Right? So here's what, we gotta, here's what we know for sure. We know David was checking her out. Right? But she wasn't doing anything other than just taking a bath. David was the one being the pervert. Okay? So I know everybody's going, oh, you shouldn't say that. Listen, it's what he was doing. All right? It was wrong, as you will see soon. All right? Now, after David saw her, obviously, he thought she was hot. Okay? So he asked about her. Let's see this. You ever wonder what his servants thought when... <laughs> When they come up and he goes, yeah, I was just staring at this lady bathing off my roof. And uh, I was wondering, <laughs> they're going, creep. <laughs> right? Okay, Second Samuel eleven three. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay, when David found out she was married, that should have been the end of it, shouldn't it? Right? I mean, I, I get it. He might have thought she was hot. He says, wow, she's really good looking. Anybody know anything about her? She looks good naked. And they're going, okay, creeper, she's married. But that wasn't the end of it. It should have been the end of it, but it wasn't. Okay, 2 Samuel eleven four 4 and 5. David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. You guys know what that means, right? Okay, he lay with her. 
And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman, con- uh, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Okay, so David was in a great position of authority. He was the king. And it seems like there's a possibility that may have gone to his head. You see that? Do you see the difference between the David we're talking about now and the David we were talking about when he was out tending the sheep and they brought him in and anointed him as king? There's a difference here. It seems like that being king might have gone to his head, and he probably wasn't very used to hearing people say no to him. And sometimes when not enough people say no to you, maybe you have a problem hearing no even from the Holy Spirit, who we know was in him at this point. We know he was in him. We just read that, right? So imagine, I'd say the Holy Spirit first probably said, David, don't stay here. Go to war. Saddle up your horse and be the leader God chose you to be. Don't stay here idle. This is not where you're supposed to be. David didn't want to hear that. So he stayed where he shouldn't be and became idle. Then he sees this woman. I'm I'm sure the Holy Spirit was saying, would you stop looking at her off the roof? And he didn't listen. Then he asks about her, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit saying, she's married, David, okay? Creep her out. Stop. Okay? Then he calls for her, lies with her, and she's pregnant. So along the way here, we see that David, evidently, is not taking advice from anybody, including the Holy Spirit. Right? Now, despite everything he had done, and it was despicable, if David would have just recognized at this point that, oh my gosh, what a mess I've made. It was sin for me to be watching. It was sin for me to bring her here when she was married. It was sin for me to lie with her. It was sin for me to, to, you know, to impregnate her. I shouldn't have done any of this. God, I'm sorry. If he would have just confessed at this point, would his life have, had a, would it have been easy? No. I mean, there was still a lot wrong here. But it would have been much better had he just stopped and repented right now than it's going to be when you hear the rest of the story. You see, there's so many times when we commit sin and it comes to our attention and the immediate ramifications come to us and we have that opportunity to say, this is wrong. I should have never done this, right? I I should have never done this. I'm just going to confess it right now and move on and I'll face my consequences. There's that moment that comes on, on each one of us where the Holy Spirit's saying, you haven't listened to me yet. Please listen to me now. Look what's happening. But instead, David didn't listen to that. Instead, he made the same mistake that we often make. He said, no, I think I'll cover up my sin. Because if I cover it up to where nobody knows what I've done, then will God know? And if nobody else knows, will God give me a pass? I'm just going to cover this up. You know what made him cover it up was pride. But he wanted to cover this up. Here's the thing people forget. You can trick people, and you can hide who you are from people, but you can never hide who you are from God. And you can never hide what you've done from God. And the fact that you refuse to repent of it doesn't make it any less come to his attention. And he will still deal with it, as we're about to see. Okay, so let's take a look at his deception. Because David comes up with a plan to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy and 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 his adultery. So, and here's how he does it, okay? Now, this is kind of really creepy deceptive, okay? Because he figured, listen, her husband Uriah has been at battle for a while. He's a soldier. So if I send and give him a weekend pass, and he comes back, I mean, he's been gone a while. He's going to go in and visit his wife, right? Because he's a man. So he sends off for him. 
which kind of probably freaked Uriah out. He's like, hey, we all get a pass? No, just me. And he comes back, and he says, hey, I'm going to give you a day off. You know, go, like, do something fun, check out the city, eat some fine meals, go sleep with your wife. <laughs> he was hoping he would come back and sleep with his wife so he could say that the pregnancy was from Uriah. He was trying to cover up the fact that, that he had committed adultery with his wife, right? So, I mean, the plan seems to, de- you know, it's deceitful, but it makes a little bit of sense. But here's the thing. See, he underestimated Uriah's dedication to his country and to his fellow soldiers. So David sent for Uriah and gave him leave, but he refused to have any comforts that his fellow soldiers didn't have. Right? Listen to this. 2 Samuel eleven eleven. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Can you imagine David going, what? Right? Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today, uh, stay here today also and tomorrow, and I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him. Now listen, understand, it didn't work. He's like, listen, we're at war. The guys I'm fighting with are still laying on the ground. My commander is laying on the ground. The, the ark of Israel is in a temporary dwelling place. We are at battle for God. I am not going to be idle, and I am not going to be distracted. I will have no luxury they don't have. And David's like, gosh. So he has backup plan, and here's what we're about to see is his backup plan. Right? So now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him what? Drunk. And in the evening, he went to, out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servant, but he did not go down to his old house. So strike two. He goes, okay, he won't sleep with his wife. He's dedicated. <laughs> I'm going to get him hammered. That's what, that was the plan. You can spiritualize it. David, you know, lines up the shots, whatever it is, and gets him drunk. He got him drunk. And he's like, I got him now. He's been at battle for a long time, hasn't been with his wife. Now he's drunk. We all know what's going to happen. But instead, Uriah goes and lays in the servants' quarters because he's not going to give himself any comforts that his fellow soldiers and the commander of the army doesn't have. He's not going to do that. Ironically, Uriah was more faithful, loyal, and dedicated than King David. As a matter of fact, he kind of reminds me of the King David got anointed back when he was a shepherd. It was all about God, and David was all about deceit at this time, right? So this is, this is just unbelievable. So David's plan proves that, I mean, unconfessed sin, when it takes root, makes you yield more sin. He didn't repent of his sin. He could have. Instead, when you hide sin, when you bury sin, you know what happens? It's like putting a seed in the ground. It just grows more sin. Has anybody ever told the little white lie? Y'all are going, no, we're Christians at church. We don't commit, little, you know. You know the little white lie the Bible never talks about that we all talk about? How many times has that little white lie turned into two little white lies? You had to cover for the first little white lie. And then there's a third little white lie. And before long, you build an ivory tower of white lies. Because and have you, you can't even remember the first one now. You're like, okay, hold on. Before I say anything, what did I say the first time? You know? Because sin, unconfessed, sprouts more sin. 
David thought, I've sinned, I'm not going to confess, I'll do this sin to cover this sin, and this sin didn't work, and this sin didn't work, and I mean, he's just ensnared in this web of lies and deceit at this time, right? And and his his actions are starting to show that he's becoming corrupt because of the unconfessed sin in his life and the pride that's in his life, right? It's starting to corrupt his character. It's spreading through him like a cancer, and I'll tell you what, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, it will eat you up like a cancer. It will. It might take a while, but it will eat you up like a cancer. It starts to destroy your closeness with God. It destroys your testimony. It destroys your blessings. And the next thing you know, you find yourself in the spiritual woodshed, which is God's discipline. Listen to this, Hebrews twelve six. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Because this is where it ends up. Right? So, listen. If you don't confess that sin, things start going wrong. The discipline of God starts to befall you. And you know, it actually eats away at your moral character. And there's sometimes you'll just find yourself looking in the mirror going, I don't even know who I am anymore. Because I know what I used to believe, and I know what I used to think, and I know what I used to feel, but because I'm afraid to let this sin go, I've just become somebody I don't recognize. You ever been there? It's terrible when you've been there, right? So listen, you know why it's so hard? Because God designed it to be hard. God doesn't want you to feel good about being bad. He doesn't want you to feel good about being deceitful. David was struggling here, and and God was okay with that. Proverbs 13.5 said, Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Now, the good news is for us, and I don't think they have this verse back there because I pulled a fast one on them. But the good news is, and this was true for David, as hard as it gets, it's super easy to start over just by confessing. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as tough as it gets and as hard as God is on people who refuses to repent of their sin, he made the door out really easy. Just confess. But David wasn't there yet. Now you would think that this would be the farthest he would go, right? He tried to get him to sleep with his wife by giving him a one-day pass. He tries to get him drunk. It doesn't work. Let's see what else happens. 2 Samuel eleven fourteen, 14. It says, Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. I want you to remember that. Before I read the content of this letter, remember that this letter was delivered by Uriah. Okay? He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. Think about this. He's saying, you know, no man went forward alone. So he would have, they would have worked just like our army does. There were battalions. and there was, So he probably had a group of men that he was in. And he was saying, take David's group to the front line at the worst place of battle where the most skilled warriors are for the other team. And when they get up there to fight, back off and leave them there so that they'll die. You ever, can you imagine? I mean, Joab probably had so much respect for David and loved David and thought how, how, what a great man and a great king he was. Imagine when this young man hands him this letter and he reads it and looks in that man's eyes. How, what do you think he thought of David at that moment? 
You think that, I mean, he had no choice. He had to do it. That was his king. But do you think he ever thought of David the same after that? Terrible, terrible. Verse 15. Let's jump down to 16. It says, uh, so it was as Joab kept watch in the city, he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also fell. So David's plan was simply, listen, he won't go into his wife for a weekend pass. He won't go into his wife. If I get him drunk, so I'll just kill him. And understand how depraved this is. It wasn't just David that died for this. It said that there were several that died here, basically. The wording said that there were several of them, right? It says some of the people among David's servants fell. These are the people that were with Uriah that he put out there in a battle he shouldn't have been in because his king wanted to murder him. So how desperate can somebody be as a believer when they get out of the will of God and their sin starts to sprout and grow so bad that they could commit mass murder? Because here it is. People go, I don't like how that sounds. Take it up with the author. You can talk to him on your knees. Because this is what it says. This is what happens when you let sin set dormant. God's not going to let him get away with it. Stick with me here, okay? Think of all these people that died. I mean, this is one of the worst things you can think of. And you would think that David's conscience would be eating him alive right now, wouldn't you? I mean, this is, this is really bad. I mean, he tur- passes up the weekend pass, gets him drunk, that doesn't work, so he gets him killed. Surely now... He's going to listen. 2 Samuel eleven twenty six. 26. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Doesn't sound like it bothered him too bad, does it? He's like, oh, man, your husband's dead. Well, wait till your time of mourning's over. You done? Come on, let's get married. <laughs> That's awful. That's what it was. He did not, I mean, he had allowed himself to get that hard. He had become that vulnerable to sin, simply beginning with him being idle and not being where he was supposed to be and not doing what he was supposed to do. Made him a target, and here's where we end up. And along the way, all the attacks of the devil are working because not only is he falling for him, when he doesn't repent, he's getting harder. And at this point, it sounds like his heart is pretty hard to me. What do you think? Here's the thing we forget. When, when we refuse to repent, when we refuse to confess our sins, essentially, we're just on the run from God. That's what it is. Because just because you won't confess it doesn't mean he doesn't know. Right? Other people may not know, but he knows. So when you say, I am not going to confess it, I'm just going to keep doing this and doing this and doing this, run as much as you want. He will catch you. You're running from God, and you can't outrun him. And there's no place you can hide from him. Okay, he's trying to outrun God. But here's the thing. When you find yourself running from God, you still won't be running alone because not running with God means you're running with the devil. Because there's only two teams. Sorry. There's no middle team. If you're not running to God, if you're running from him, you are running with the other team. That's just the way it is. And David was. Is he a believer? Yes. Was he he guaranteed eternal life? Yes. Was God going to put up with what he did? No. Why? Because God's justice always catches up. Galatians 6, 7. It says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will what? He will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows uh, to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Because there's always a time of reckoning. Now people always say, well, uh, if you don't lose your salvation, then you get away with your sin. Well, you're about to find out how you get away with your sin. 
You can't lose your salvation. I'm sorry. I know that would make everything all tidy, but it's just a lie. You can't. Eternal life means eternal life. God knows how to deal with his people. There's a day of reckoning. Right? Let's look at this. David's heart had become hard. Right? You can see that all over the situation. He had become spiritually blind to his own actions here. Right? He had forgot all about God's discipline. Because, you know, he's the king. He can do what he wants. He forgot all about, you know, losing blessings in the kingdom. He forgot all about how God can take your rewards here on earth. He forgot about all that stuff because he started being hard in his heart. He started basically thinking like a pagan. He started thinking like a pagan. It was about pleasing him, heck with God. Apparently he had forgotten who it was that made him king of Israel. Maybe he had forgotten who really had those victories that everybody sung about David. Maybe he had forgotten that Goliath fell because God guided the stone. Maybe he forgot that all the armies fell because God was the one who was going to battle before him. He'd forgotten all those things, but he was about to have a reminder, and a serious reminder. Look at this, 2 Samuel 12.1. Now, Nathan, I'm about to speak of as a prophet, okay? The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in the city, the one rich and the one poor. That's how prophets roll. They just come up and start telling you a story, right? All right, verse 2. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie at his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Do you see what we're setting up here? You see, Nathan's good. I mean, he's good. All right, so he says, there's this rich guy that has everything. And there's this poor guy who just has one little sheep. That he loves and it sleeps with him. And, you know, he it eats off his table. It's like his kid. And then there's this rich guy that has his tons of sheep. That's how he sets it up. Okay? Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. See, it was customary. If you had a visitor, you would slay one of your own flock and feed him. But he's saying this rich man was too stingy and selfish and self-centered. So instead of taking one of the many, many sheep he has, he steals this poor guy's one little sheep that's, that slept with him and he fed it and it was like a daughter and his kids loved it and played with it in the yard. You know, He's good. He's setting this up great. Then David's anger greatly burned against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, how can he even say that? Right? He says, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves what? To die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So Nathaniel's probably sitting here going, and there it is. Right? Because listen, he set it up perfectly. Basically, he uses a parable to tell David his life story for the last month. And a parable is just an earthly tale of a heavenly principle. That's what it is, right? So David listens to this story and puts on his king hat, not realizing it's about his own life, and he is angry. Oh, he is indignant. 
And, and, and David couldn't believe somebody could be that selfish and that self-centered. How could someone take that one lamb when all that guy had was that one lamb and that other greedy hog had all those sheep? He needs to die. Isn't it funny how quickly he was ready to pronounce judgment on somebody else? Well, he was ready to pronounce judgment on somebody else because he was spiritually blind. You know, sometimes we're just like that, aren't we? We have sin in our life we know good and well we need to deal with. But rather than deal with our sin, we can't wait to sit on judge and jury when someone else has sin in their life. And by gosh, when someone else sins, we want to see the just hand of God smite the grapes of wrath. (laughs) Right? But when we sin... We want God to show his just and merciful side, his love and his grace, because thy servant didn't really mean to do this, and you know my heart. That's how we feel. But when someone else sins, oh my gosh, we are ready to jump on. Sometimes our hearts get so hard, we forget about our own sin. And we're just focused on everybody else's. I've even known people that allow their sin to harden them so much they almost forgot who they were in Christ. Listen to this. 2 Peter 1.5, it says, Now, for this very reason also applying all diligence. Now listen, pay attention to this, because this is a lot. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brother kind, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our lord jesus christ okay now so basically saying if you're focused on all the things god's wanting you to show the world about him you'll never be idle you'll never be distracted and it'll be real hard for the devil to target you because you're going to be busy you're going to be where you're supposed to be right in verse 9 it says for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from what from his former sins you know how you get to that point you judge everyone else, but make excuses for you. Right? You want justice for everyone else and mercy for you because they must be terrible sinners. You just must be a wayward little sheep. We've got to be careful not to be like David. And there are too many believers who are like that. Listen, if you really are attending to your own life, I have a hard time thinking you have time to judge anybody. Maybe you're just more righteous than me, but I have a hard time. Running out of battery, we could be in trouble here. All right, now, so listen, here's where we're at, okay? So he hears this story, and he's just, oh, my gosh, he's just ready. Let's bring justice. This man should die. Listen to this. I just can't hardly say this without laughing, and I don't know why. 2 Samuel 12, 7, 1 through 12. Nathan then says to David, what? You are the man. And it's not the good way. You're the man. It's not that way. David said, who is this guy that would do that, that deserves death and God's judgment? And Nathan goes, it's you. It's you. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. He basically said, you used Israel's enemy as your murder weapon. 
All right, that's what he's saying. Verse 10, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your home because uh, the, the, I lost my spot there. Uh, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up, or raise up every evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your household, or give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do the thing before all Israel un- and under the sun. So, you know what he said? He said, You hid your sin and you thought you were deceiving everybody and getting one over on me so everything you did you may have hidden from people but what i'm going to do to you everyone's going to see he said the sword will never leave your house you know what that means that all the trouble that's about to come because your sin will come right out of your house and it did and it did because the sons of these different wives did not get along and eventually one of his own sons ran him out of his kingdom And when he ran him out of his kingdom, he laid with his concubines and his wife in front of everybody openly so they could watch. God's prophecy came true. And he brought this on himself because he brought that whole mess when he took someone else's wife. And it all started because there's danger in being distracted from being who you're supposed to be and where you're supposed to be and with who you're supposed to be. When you're distracted from what God wants you to do, this is what can happen. But all that being said, someone has said one time, it's not, it's, it's not how hard we fall that defines us or how often we fall that defines us. What defines us is how quickly we get back up and choose to do something better, right? And this is what I want you to learn from this. I wanted you to know that David made mistakes. We saw the great things he did. And we were like, wow, what an amazing king. But I want you to know he was just like you and me. He had sin in his life, and he had to defeat that sin by giving it to God. He didn't let the sin keep him down. He accepted his punishment. Look at this, 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 13. It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sins. You shall not die. See, as soon as he said he confessed his sin, God immediately took it. That could have happened anywhere along the way. He says, however, because of this deed, you have uh, given occasion to the enemy of the, of the Lord to blaspheme. The child that is also born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. He said, listen, God forgives you, but you still have to deal with the consequences. And think how much less they'd have been if way back in the beginning, when you first recognized what you had done was wrong, you'd have just confessed it. And imagine you wouldn't even be here if you would have not been so distracted as to not be where the king should have been, but you were where you shouldn't have been and made yourself a target for the enemy because distraction can lead to destruction, you're here. So maybe from now on, you should stay about my business. This is what's so important about understanding what happened in the life of David. He was a powerful man of God, not just because of the great things he did, but because of how he got back up after the great fall that came from his sin. Yeah, he sinned just like us, but he didn't allow it to define him. And you're gonna see that as a result of that, he is highly esteemed, and you'll hear his name a lot as we go into First Kings, and that's where we'll start next week. So I'm going to go ahead and close, and ask you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time here, we always give an invitation. I know this is one of those messages that, that may come across as hard, but listen. What we can gather from this is God didn't expect anybody to be perfect ever. He knew David would make that mistake before he ever 
guaranteed him eternal life, but he loved him so much he did anyway. Listen, God doesn't save us because of who we are. He saves us despite of who we are. If there's anyone here who doesn't know him, I just want to pray for you. Just make eye contact with me. Put your head right back down. I'm not going to cha- bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down. I won't email you. I just really want to pray for you. Bless those people. And here's the thing. I know some people may think, oh, you know, the Christians have it all together. No, we don't. We sin just like you. The difference is we have Jesus to help pick us back up. Listen, for those of you who are believers, I'm going to pray for you because, listen, if there's one thing David's life proved is that when you're where you're supposed to be, God can do things in your life that's amazing. And when you're distracted and where you're not supposed to be, that's when all the destruction comes in your life. We could just learn. If we could just learn from him and try to focus more and be idle less, think of the blessing. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all the people that have come to be with us. I thank you for all those listening online. I just thank you, Lord, for your love and your mercy. And God, I know none of us deserve it. You know who we are. You know the person that we try to hide from everybody. And knowing who we are and how sinful we are, you still sent your son to die for us. Not because we were good enough, but because we never could be. And you made a way that if we could believe that what he did was enough to guarantee our eternal life, that we would have it. I don't understand grace like that. I don't understand love like that, but I am so thankful it exists. If there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray that whatever's holding them back, just clear it out of their mind and let them trust your son Jesus for their eternal life. And if they make that decision, I hope they contact us or a good Christian person or organization near them. But God, for those of us who know you, give us the passion to be where we're supposed to be, to be focused to give our time and attention to showing people the love that you've shown us. Keep us away from the distractions that make us an easy target. We just pray as we leave here, you would go with us and keep us safe. If you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory at least one more time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.